I'm just going to read a very short portion from the Word of God tonight, and then immediately after this, our brother Sam Houston is going to come and sing to us. Let's turn tonight to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. I told you last evening that there were 53 references to the word harvest in the Bible. I told you the first reference was Genesis 8 and 22. And the last reference (coughs) was Revelation 14 and the verse 15. And of course this is a reference to the last harvest. The final harvest. Revelation chapter 14, verse 14. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap. For the time is come for thee to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat in the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth. And the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire, and cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Amen. May the Lord add this blessing to his reading of his own infallible word. On your behalf, I'd like to welcome amongst us the Reverend Ian Brown. Minister now of the Martyrs Congregation. So we're delighted to have you. Thank you very much for being here and we're looking forward to your ministry. Perhaps you could turn with me in the Word of God tonight to the book of John, John's Gospel, and chapter 19. Thank you very much for the invitation to come. It certainly isn't too far away. And given where I live, uh, then it's pretty handy. I've been used for 26 years to be driving up and down the country. Uh, Wherever you were going, it was always a distance because Londonderry was not close to anywhere. Apart from Limavady, I guess, 18 miles away, and then the other neighbouring Free Presbyterian Church going the other direction, you would have been in Mulvan, about 21 miles away. If you want to go down 
the third route, main route out of the city, um, down the Glen Sheen, the first free Presbyterian church you'll get to that's almost en route there would be Macrofilt, and that'll take you all but uh, 45 minutes to get there. So I feel kind of claustrophobic now that I'm down in Belfast with all of these free Presbyterian churches everywhere you look. Ten minutes, no matter what direction you go, and you're bound to pass a door or two of another free Presbyterian church. So it's a rather different feeling. But I am thankful to be here tonight. We're turning to God's Word. We're in John chapter 19, and we'll commence to read at verse 23. John 19 and the 23rd verse. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said therefore among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. That the scripture might be fulfilled which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things therefore the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clavis, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar. They filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and gave up the ghost. The Jews therefore, because it was the preparation, that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers, break the legs of the first, and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bare record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. And again another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Amen. We know that God himself will add his blessing onto the reading of his word in our hearing tonight. We'll bow with God's word before us in a further word of prayer. Mm. Heavenly Father, we call upon thy name. And we thank thee for the scriptures of truth. We know there are many men and women today in the secular age in which we live, 
dripping with their sarcasm and that skepticism that is naturally theirs. Mm -hmm. And they come to the word of God and they try to tear it apart and undermine confidence within it. Mock those who believe it. And they're just an echo of the old devil himself, that serpent, who hissed in the Garden of Eden. Yea, hath God said. But Father, we know that, yes, God has said. Hallelujah. We thank thee that thy word and every word of God is pure. Yes. It is forever settled in heaven. Mm-hmm. We know that heaven and earth will pass away, but thy word shall not pass away. And we thank thee that as Jesus believed, so we believe tonight. Because he looked across those scriptures in his day, the Old Testament scriptures, and declared, thy word is truth. Not truth with an admixture of error. Not fact in some areas and fables in the other areas. But start to finish. It all adds up to one thing, and that is truth. Amen. And so we thank thee that the truth we shall note, and it shall make us free. And we thank thee for those in the meeting who have been set free, and they can say it was by the word of God, because faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It was the entrance of thy word that gave light. And Lord, we pray for light again tonight. And for understanding and for grace and help in the ministry of thy word. And may it be a real blessing unto our hearts. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. When a farmer sows out his fields. Well after careful management he's going to expect his crop will be ripened. Ready for the harvesting some months down the line. We even sang that thought tonight in hymn 737, the verse 2, where it talked about first the blade and then the ear, then the full corn shall appear. Or in the previous Bible reading by our brother Reverend McLaughlin tonight, when he took us to Revelation 14, we read there, the harvest of the earth is ripe. And the thought underlying that the harvest is ripe is that there was once a time where there was a sowing of seed and now that has come through unto harvest time. God, the great husbandman, we find in Scripture, he was in the custom of planting seeds in the Old Testament and hundreds of years later, maybe even a thousand years or more than a thousand years later, we find that those seeds that were planted in the Old Testament ripened to their grand fulfilment in New Testament times. Now tonight we're going to confine ourselves to three prophecies or three seeds of prediction out of the Old Testament scriptures that only came to their full harvest when our Lord Jesus Christ was dying under the curse of our sins on Calvary. So number one tonight in terms of fulfilled prophecy or a text that is harvested out of Old Testament times, fulfilled prophecy number one bring us to the crucifixion close. The crucifixion clothes. 
Look at John 19, verse 23, and the verse 24, where again we read, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. Verse 24, they said, Therefore among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. That the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Though they would not have been aware of it, the actions of those Roman soldiers with the crucifixion clothes of Jesus fulfilled right down to the very letter the prophecy that we find in Psalm 22 and the verse 18. David wrote in that Psalm 22 verse 18, They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Now that seed that was planted away by, by the pen of David in the 22nd Psalm, that Psalm is filled with details that forecast the death of the Messiah. David wrote the Psalm about 1,000 years before Jesus went to Calvary. It was in the 10th century before Christ. And so all four of our New Testament evangelists, they are pitching back into Psalm 22 when they begin to talk about the clothes of Jesus around Calvary. Matthew talks about it in Matthew 27, 35. Mark in Mark 15, 24. Luke as well brings in the details here in Luke 23, verse 34. And now the passage we're looking at tonight, John writes about it in chapter 19. Verses 23 and 24. According to John's writing here in verse 23, the soldiers gathered around the cross were able to decide ownership of these four clothing items belonging to Christ. And they claimed ownership without, first of all, gambling. There would have been four garments here, including a headdress, sandals, most likely a girdle or a belt, and then you would have had an outer garment. And though they had those four articles, one piece of clothing for each of the four soldiers, why do we read that they also cast lots? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us, Luke doesn't tell us, Mark doesn't tell us either. It's left to John to give the clarification on this point. And we're reading here in verse 23 again, and down towards the middle of the verse, we read, and also his coat. The four parts have been divided so far, and also his coat, now we read. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. So they're parting around that cross, these four items of Jesus' clothing. One soldier gets the headdress, another one the sandals, another one the girdle or the belt, the other one the outer garment. So we have one piece each. 
But when those soldiers then turned their attention to the fifth piece of clothing, the remaining piece, the tunic that Jesus was wearing, and when they examined that, they discover now we can't divide this among the four of us. It's not a patchwork of pieces sewn together that we can readily divide. Rather, it is no seams. It was a quality garment, and it had taken, very obviously, some time to make. And so they're thinking to themselves, we can't divide a seamless coat. If we did, all of the pieces would be frayed and pretty useless. And so they decided that we're going to have to award this tunic, the remaining piece, the fifth item of clothing, we're going to have to reward that to one of us. And they cast lots. They gambled, allowed time and chance to determine who would get this garment in its entirety. Now, that very detail brings us right back to the exact wording in Psalm 22, verse 18, 1,000 years before, where there is a clear division. They part, David writes, my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Garments being plural, vesture here in Psalm 22 being singular. Now we need to note very carefully here that these four unnamed Roman military men who had just been assigned to crucifixion duty on this particular day and they just happened to be assigned to that duty. They just happened to be in charge of the condemned Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who just happened that day to be wearing a seamless tunic. Those soldiers were all operating according to their own impulses. They were not Jews, they were Romans. They had no familiarity whatsoever with the Jewish scripture. So Psalm 22, the verse 18, would have been nothing to them. They were not controlled. By any outside source. No disciple came to one of the soldiers, pulled him back, whispered in his ear, and said to him, Now you need to be very careful here because you're on the cusp of fulfilling a prophecy, and here's the way you can fulfill the prophecy. Divide four of the garments, gamble in the fifth one, and you will have fulfilled Psalm 22 and the verse 18. That did not happen. And yet, with uncanny precision, Words written by King David a millennium before him came to stunning fulfilment. Words that on the surface even might have seemed to be contradicting each other. Clothes divided into separate pieces and yet clothes over which a lot or a gamble was cast. To be able, 1,000 years before the event, to pinpoint this specific incident that occurred in the life of Jesus upon this earth, respecting his clothing and how that clothing would be treated, gambled over and divided, is proof positive that we have a Bible inspired by God. Amen. But this is not all. John informs us that this item of clothing, the final item, over which the Roman soldiers needed to resort to gambling to decide the ownership of it. It was without seam, woven from the top throughout. 
Why get down to that kind of nitty-gritty detail? Why put in this piece of minutia here? What significance could we possibly associate with such a trivial point of detail? Without seam, woven from the top throughout, why include that? To find a possible explanation, we need to dig deeper into Bible teaching. In 1500 BC, God gave the law of Moses to the people of Israel as a set of covenant requirements that would guide the nation of Israel right down the line of its historical existence. And that law that he gave to Moses included provision for the high priest, right down to the details when that priest was offering sacrifice. On the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, he alone would have entered into the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle or the temple to make atonement for himself and for all of the people. And we know from Scripture that that priest stood as a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was our great high priest, Hebrews 3 and 1. Hebrews 4 and 14, Hebrews 9 11, right through the book of Hebrews, Jesus is lifted up as our great high priest. Among the articles of clothing that God stipulated this high priest in Old Testament times, working in the nation of Israel, among the articles of clothing that he was to wear was, we are told in Exodus 28 39, a garment skillfully woven, a coat of Fine linen. Now according to the Jewish historian Josephus, this clothing item for the priest was seamless. He writes, Now this vesture was not composed of two pieces, nor was it sewed together upon the shoulders and the sides, but it was one long vestment so woven as to have an aperture for the neck not an oblique one, but parted all along the breast and the back. Now John, when he's writing his gospel, he goes out of his way to flag up this point. It is a seamless garment woven from the top throughout. And the Roman soldiers gambled for this seamless tunic of the Messiah. And they would not have known around that cross that this seamless garment most subtly pointed to Jesus redemptive Rome as our great high priest he was making atonement for the sins of those who would call upon his name the handling of the clothes of Jesus Christ on this occasion of his crucifixion demonstrates the fine detail that is in scripture, that every word of God is pure, that the Bible is of divine origin, start to finish. Think about this a minute or two longer. Those in our day who reject the death of Jesus Christ are gambling with higher stakes than those Roman soldiers ever gambled. They weren't just gambling for Jesus' clothes back then. They were also gambling. He was just another piece of criminal flotsam that it was their job that day to execute. They were gambling that what everybody else, those Jews, had told them about Jesus was right. 
that he was not the Christ, that he was not the Son of God. They were gambling that he was not the King of the Jews. They were gambling that he was not their only Saviour. What evidence did they have to believe in Jesus? It must be admitted they had very little evidence to go on. Until that crucifixion scene was finished. And Jesus had breathed his last words. Then the leader of that squad of Roman soldiers, their centurion, he had assimilated all the facts of what he had seen in his mind that day. And he had brought them all together and he concluded Truly, this man was the Son of God. He had taken that evidence. And at the end of the day, this is what he concluded. But those who reject Jesus in our day, maybe yourself, maybe family members, friends, people in this locality, they not only reject the conclusion of this centurion, they not only reject the transformation of the frightened disciples that then went out to began on the day of Pentecost to blaze it real for God and preach the gospel. They not only reject the millions of testimonies of believers in Christ down through the centuries of time, but they reject the witness of the Bible. And down through the years, men have lined up to be eradicated. And to burn it to a crisp. And to get rid of the word of God. But it has endured and endured. To inspire more and more believers. And to remind us. God's word is true. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for you. The crucifixion close. But then dipping back into the Old Testament again. And looking at this prediction seed, number two, or fulfilled prophecy, number two, we're coming then to the unbroken bones. The unbroken bones. And we're at John 19, verse 36. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. Now, we really need to pedal back to verse 31 here and go forwards from that point to get the complete picture. John 19, verse 31. The Jews, therefore, they're working under pressure because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day. Besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Verse 32, then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. Verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. Verse 36, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. Was it pure chance that the Roman guard circulating around the three bodies suspended from those three crosses held back from breaking the legs of the crucified Redeemer? Was it just pure chance? Not according to John. 
For he recalled, as he saw the legs of the Saviour remaining unbroken, he recalled a sacred oracle, an Old Testament word, a seed plot in the Old Testament, where those soldiers, they would have known nothing about it, but that seed plot had said, Psalm 34 and the verse 20, He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. And you know something else? John would have pitched even further back in time, way beyond the book of the Psalms into the days of Moses again, into Exodus chapter 12 and the verse 46. And John would have had the picture in his eye here of the paschal lamb, that lamb by instruction of God that was to be slain so that the blood would be shed, but that not a bone of that body in the lamb would be broken. Exodus 12, 46 reads, In one house shall it be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. So on that cross, John sees our great high priest. John sees also the Passover lamb. And that lamb... Now being crucified, he would have thought back in his mind to a day when John the Baptist, his namesake, was down by the river Jordan, baptizing souls. And over the horizon, a figure begins to come and he looks at that figure and he turns the attention of all who were with John the Baptist in his preaching. He turns their attention to the figure approaching and he cries, John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And so John, now the apostle, is logging into this fact that on the cross it is none other than the Lamb of God who is being slain in this particular fashion. And we read in John 19 how the Jews here were saying, we want these deaths to be hurried up. We want these bodies of the cross. It's a preparation day. We need to remove this grisly sight from our eyes. It can't be allowed to defile our holy day. Take the bodies. And so they broke the legs of the two thieves on either side of Jesus, but not the legs of Christ. For had those Jews succeeded in their aim, break all of their legs, then they would have made it impossible for Jesus to be identified with the Passover sacrifice. But God was not going to allow that. As Proverbs 19 and 21 summarizes this situation, many others as well, there are many devices in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord that shall stand. And at the cross, the counsel of God was standing and Jesus' legs remained unbroken. Marcus Lone, an old bishop from Sydney in Australia many years ago, commented, Christ had been kept by the shield of ancient type and prophecy. And when he died, he could claim with humble truth, quoting Psalm 32 and 17, I may tell all my bones. After Christ's resurrection and ascension into heaven, The early church continued to meet and observe the Passover. But each time they observed it, it was with a new understanding and with a true significance. The Lord Jesus, he is our Passover sacrifice. Crucified, 
atonement to take away our sins. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, Even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. But given the fact he'd on broken bones before we just move on to our final point, let's notice it means something else. There was extra significance in those unbroken bones. The strength of the body is in the bones. The Hebrew word for the bones signifies the strength. Therefore a bone of Christ must not be broken to show that though he was crucified in weakness, his strength to save is not at all broken. Matthew Henry commented, Sin breaks our bones, as it broke David's, and David confesses that in Psalm 51 and 8. But sin did not break Christ's bones. He stood firm under the burden, mighty to see. Sin will break your bones. It will drag your constitution down. It'll pound you, shatter you, splinter you. And if you die unrepentant and then drop into hell for all eternity, it will crush and grind your body and soul in excruciating, unalleviated torments. Your only hope is to run to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the sin-bearing Saviour who is still strong to see. The crucifixion closed. The unbroken bones fulfilled prophecy. See the prediction number three, the pierced side. The pierced side. John 19.34 informs us that one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came the right blood and water to make doubly sure of death. Given the fact we're not breaking his bones, to make doubly sure of death, that legionnaire drove his lance between the ribs, upward through the pericardium, and into the heart. That's why there was the scape pier of watery fluid from that sack surrounding the heart and the blood of the interior of that heart. And this is rather conclusive, post-mortem evidence that Jesus really died. And not by the usual crucifixion death that was by suffocation, but of heart failure due to the shock and constriction of the heart by the fluid in the pericardium. Forthwith came the right blood and water. These tremendous cleansing elements of blood and water pour forth from the crucified Jesus. Matthew Henry again said the blood and water that flowed out of it were significant. They signified the two great benefits which all believers partake of through Christ. Justification and sanctification. Blood for remission. Water for regeneration. Blood for atonement. Water for purification. We're used to singing the words of top lady. Rock of ages. Cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. 
An old preacher said, speaking of Jesus' riven side, through this window, opened in Christ's side, you may look into his heart and see love flaming there, love strong as death. See our names written there. And John, the apostle, as he stands there and makes his record, of what he sees. Another Old Testament scripture. With that side erupted in Jesus. Another Old Testament scripture. Comes flowing into his mind. And in John 19.37 he writes. And again another scripture saith. They shall look on him. Whom they pierced. They didn't pierce the other two. Neither of the thieves ended up with a pierced side with blood and water flowing from them. Only Christ. Was it simply a matter again of pure chance when that soldier's spear was plunged into the budding of my crucified Lord? Did he just do it because the thought came into his head and he didn't know what he was doing? He had no idea whatsoever. That he was fulfilling an old prophecy. But John recalled standing there. How there's a sacred oracle in the scripture. In Psalm 22 and 16. Talking so much about the Messiah. That says they pierced my hands and my feet. And more than that. Going to the book of Zechariah. Chapter 12 the verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David. And upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me, whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him, as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And John is now grasping the fact that standing at the cross, this is none other than the Son of God, who has been pierced in front of his eyes, exactly in the way in which the scriptures described. Just as ancient prophecy, sown as a seed hundreds of years before, had predicted, so that seed had come to the harvest in front of his eyes. And John could later write as he did in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, the verse 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wheel because of him. It's promised when the Spirit of God is poured out. Zechariah promised that they will look on him and they will mourn. That was in part fulfilled when many of those who betrayed and murdered our Lord were pricked to the heart on the day of Pentecost and brought to believe on him. It will be further fulfilled when all of Israel shall be saved, when every last soul for whom Jesus shed his blood shall be brought into grace. And it will be fulfilled in wrath. When those who keep going on in their unbelief and in their rejection of Christ and in turning their back on him, when on the final day of judgment they shall see him, whom they have pierced, and will because of him. This applies to each of us. 
we have all been guilty of piercing the Lord Jesus. And we must all look on him. And I pray that rather than on the day of judgment you look in fear and trembling and in the knowledge that I am now destined for hell for I have rejected this Savior that rather you look in the look of salvation to him tonight. Isaiah 45, 22, that kind of look. Look unto me and be ye saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God. And there is none else. And Jesus dying on that cross is saying. There is no one else who fulfills all these prophecies. No one else. Only me. He is the only saviour. And standing at his cross. John we have highlighted three. He has highlighted even more. In John chapter 19 of the prophecies that were fulfilled. But if we can look at prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Dating back hundreds if not over a thousand years. Before Christ was nailed to the cross. And they're all coming together. Being harvested and fulfilled in these final few hours. Some scholars have said. That Jesus in the final 24 hours. Prior to his crucifixion. Fulfilled no less than 33 distinct Old Testament prophecies. We have looked at three. And only three. You can keep multiplying. What does it all say? It says we can depend upon this book. We can stand four square on the word of God. Knowing we're on a foundation that will not give way. I love the way Emmanuel Cronenwet put it, we have a sure prophetic word by inspiration of the Lord. And though it's sealed in every hand, Jehovah's word shall ever stand. By powers of empire banned and burned, by pagan pride rejected, spurned, the word still stands. The Christians trust while haughty empires Lie in dust. Lo, what the word in times of old, of future days and deeds foretold, is all fulfilled. While ages roll, as traced on the prophetic scroll, abiding, steadfast, firm, and sure, the teachings of the word endure. Blessed he who trusts this steadfast word. His anchor holds in Christ the Lord. Thank you for listening.